Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is Brent Adamson. Brent is a managing director with CEB, a member-based advisory company. The purpose of the company is to equip leaders with insights and actual solutions needed to respond to evolving business conditions and to transform their operations. Brett is the best-selling co-author of The Challenger Sale and a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Bloomberg Business Week. We're talking to Brent today about his recent article in the Harvard Business Review, Dismantling the Sales Machine. In this article, Brent explains why leaders must dismantle the process-driven sales machine for one that is more flexible and driven by insight and judgment. Welcome to the program, Brent. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to, uh, to have a chat today. I'm equally as excited, too. As you know, Matt Dixon, your co-art there at the CEB, has been on BizTalk. And his podcast, talking about the Challenger Sale, the landmark study that your company did about what it takes to be a top performer in sales today, that's available as a podcast out on the website biztalkradioshow.com and at the same time we get to follow up with you on your recent article because I can only imagine our audience saying to themselves well I just got my sales force put together now this guy is telling me that I need to dismantle it so Brent what was the insight or the things you were seeing out in the marketplace as you worked with your customers that led you to write this article about dismantling the sales force Sure, Jim. I'd be happy to give you a sense for um, sort of where that project came from. And, you know, there's, there's kind of two answers to the question. One is specific to our work, our earlier work on the Challenger sale. And, and then the other genesis is really sort of just more broadly speaking around sort of what we're seeing out in the marketplace. And perhaps we can dive into a little bit of both across our conversation today. But, but you know, very tactically speaking, in, in many ways, when we first got after this question, because the heart and soul of that article, Dismantling the Sales Machine, uh, the heart and soul of the, the, the article, the Dismantling the Sales Machine, really is a, is a look at uh, sales culture. And the reason why we wanted to get into this question of organizational culture inside of a sales uh, uh, or a team is because as companies were really moving towards more of a challenger approach, uh, they're, they're asking uh, all sorts of, pr- actually, frankly, pretty tough questions around what does this mean for the culture that we have to create inside our organization to better support that shift towards more of a challenger approach. And if you think about the, the challenger sale, and again, since we've talked about that in the past, just, you know, it's just a couple sentences on it, but the, the whole idea of a, a challenger approach to selling, which is all based on the research that we've done here, is the idea that in many ways our single biggest competitor today isn't so much our competition and their ability to sell, but in many ways our biggest competitor today is our own customer and their ability to learn on their own and come to the table with significantly greater research completed, a better idea of what they're trying to achieve uh, which puts us into a very difficult, uh, essentially, commodity trap. And, and we've talked about that in other places in a lot more depth. But the idea is that in this world, it's, it's, not, it's not enough to simply ask your customers what you, they need and then some deliver on those needs, but really to, to challenge those needs, to, to, uh, to challenge your thinking, to disrupt that sort of learning process, that learning journey that they can go on uh, on their own. And, and again, there's a, there's a relatively large story now we've built out around sort of what does that mean for sales reps, for sales managers, for marketing, for insight, for content, for content marketing. 
But the question we were really trying to get after in this specific case was, what does it mean for the culture of a sales organization if we're going to move towards more of a, uh, uh, an organization that is specifically and purposefully designed to, to not just deliver on customer needs, but essentially disrupt those needs, to, to help customers believe, you know, understand there's, there's ways that they could save money or make money or mitigate risk in ways they haven't fully appreciated. And so that's what we set out to answer, is say, what does that culture look like? Uh, you know, and we went out and, and studied with a lot of uh, research, with a lot of quantitative analysis. We did uh, survey data of thousands of sales reps around the world trying to understand different components of sales culture. And we, we came to a, a number of conclusions, including the first one, which is sales culture is probably not the best way to think about it. <laughs> um, and so if you'd like, Jim, I can, I can take you a little bit through our findings and tell you a little bit about what we found in terms of uh, what, what this question of sales culture really is all about from a sales perspective. And then, and then I can tie it back to the, the sales machine idea, if that sounds good. Yeah, that, that does sound good. So what I hear you saying is, what I hear you saying is, some companies went out and found a bunch of these challenger salespeople, and then they said to themselves, you know, if we plug them into our organization the way we're currently structured, we may not get the performance out of them that they're capable of. That's right. In fact, what we found is, you know, because the, the challenger work now has been around for a long enough amount of time, a couple of years, uh, for us to actually go out into nature, as it were, into the world, and, and observe companies that are pushing sometimes quite aggressively or, or sort of, you know, moving uh, in a very systematic fashion towards building a, a challenger organization. And we can track their progress. We can monitor the challenges they're facing. And many of them, what we're finding is, is they're, they're making progress early on, but after about six months to 12 months, they begin to really um, run into a bit of a wall. Uh, and, and the reason why is because they'll, they'll find that, you know, our star performers are adopting the approach. Uh, they're embracing it. In fact, many of them were kind of doing a lot of this stuff already. But to get that widespread scaled impact that we're really looking for across the entire organization, we're finding in many ways uh, that simply training our sales reps uh, and, you know, getting them the book, letting them read the book and, and giving them some quick training is just not enough because there's systemically the organization isn't really designed uh, to support it. And, and without that sort of systemic support, the foundational elements of the organization uh, redesigned to support a challenger approach, it, it, we're finding is you know, all the work you do at the individual sales rep level probably is insufficient, necessary, but insufficient to fully get you to where you're really ultimately trying to go. And that's what led us back to this question of well, what does it mean at the, at the organizational level uh, to build a challenger organization, which then got us into this whole question of sales culture. And have we created an environment that is supportive of Challenger, uh, and, and what would that actually mean? Before we get too far into your topic, we should have a conversation about the sales culture that sales companies are building today. So what are you seeing out there? Yeah, by the way, I'm going to start using the word climate as opposed to culture, only because we found that culture, and there, this is, we get into this in the article in a little bit more detail, but the idea of culture is actually a very difficult thing to, to actually address in a sales organization, because culture is it's built on legacy. It's built on organizational uh, sort of uh, foundational principles. It's, it's very difficult for a sales leader to change the culture, quote-unquote, of their, of their sales team. But we found that there's another term, which actually a lot of people have studied in a lot of depth, called climate. And, and, and the two are really different in many ways, but they're, they're, uh, they're related. But climate is the idea that, you know, it's the work that the tasks we prioritize, the, the actual activities that we engage in, the messages that we send through our management team. And so Really, the question is, what's kind of the climate that we've created? Now, the climate that most of us have created in sales over the last 5, 10, 15 years is a climate that we've essentially come to call the sales machine. And, and we do that with a huge amount of respect to the amount of work and effort that's gone into creating this climate in the first place. Because if you think about 
in many ways, what we've all tried to do in sales over the last, again, 5, 10, 15 years is to, it, it kind of goes like this. The, the, the belief is let's go out and understand uh, through, uh, uh, through observation, through analysis, uh, through quantitative uh, you know, uh, uh, analysis, what exactly is it that our star performing sales reps are doing? Because the belief is if we can truly understand the activities that our star reps are engaged in in our sales organization that really set them apart, the activities that define excellence for them, then we can somehow, if we can capture that and, and bottle it and export it to the rest of the organization, that would be fantastic. And the way that we typically would do that is you identify the activities that set the star performers apart. Uh, once you identify those activities, you build a process, a sales process around those activities designed to essentially act as a proxy for that star performer behavior. And then we train everyone on that sales process and then drive compliance to the actual process. The idea is if, if these are the activities that drive success, then let's get everyone to engage in those activities with as high a level of precision and predictability as possible. So we bring out the, the Six Sigma experts to drive all the variability we can out of the system, get everyone sort of marching in the same direction around that, that prescribed set of activities uh, that we, we have found to, to, see, uh, to essentially be predictive of success. And so in many ways, that's the, the metaphor of the sales machine is the one we like to use here is because the idea is how do we run that thing once we've designed it, once we've implemented and trained on it, how do we run it at peak efficiency with as little variability uh, as possible? And, and in many ways, by the way, uh, that's really what a lot of our research over the last 10 years up till about two or three years ago was all designed to help our members uh, sort of execute on around the world. And, and today's not the day, Jim, I'm going to say that was a really dumb idea. What were we thinking? It actually made a ton of sense. Um, where the story goes next, and we can get into if you like, is uh, what we're finding, though, is the world we're selling into today is very different than the world for which that sales machine was originally designed. And in many ways, when you take it to look at the world today that we're selling into and run the sales machine strategy in that world, things start to actually fall apart in a pretty dramatic way. You're listening to BizTalk, and our guest is Brett Adamson. In addition to Brent sharing his expertise on sales forces, you can find other experts that have shared their wisdom with us here on BizTalk. Those are available on podcasts on our website and cover our business topics in the areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales and sales management, and, of course, personal development. You can download those podcasts from our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. So, Brett, picking up where we left off, let's put this in context for our audience. In other words, why we're having this discussion. So give them a brief overview of how companies have changed the way that they buy that is even causing us to rethink how we structure our sales force. There's a couple different ways we could do this, and so let's, I'll do the, to your point, let's see if I can do the brief version. Sure. The, you know, the, the briefest possible version is to say simply, the, you know, the, the word that's come to dominate our understanding of how sales works today is the word variability, uh, and that we're selling into an environment that is significantly more variable than it ever was in the past. And part of it, uh, and part of the story is due to what your customers can do today that they never could do before which is learn on their own. And we've talked about this in other places and other times as well, but the, uh, the idea that customers now equipped with more information than ever before can come to the table with a much better understanding of what it is that they're trying to achieve. And so, you know, we see this uh, in all sorts of ways in sales around the world. As, as our member companies, sets of sales around the world tell us, you know, we're, we're finding that 
more of our business than ever before is going to RFP. More of our business is being pushed towards a, a commodity. We're seeing margins compressed, deal sizes shrinking, and a lot of that. Not all of it. There's other things going on, too. But for today's purposes, we'll focus on the really the ability of your customers to, quote, unquote, figure it all out before they ever approach a supplier. Is that, by the way, there's an interesting footnote to that, which is whether or not your customers actually get it right in that learning process is a completely different question altogether. But nonetheless, they come to the table with a belief that they've got it all figured out. Uh, and what's interesting, though, is you, you, you take now that you kind of lift the cover off of that, that, that trend, that ability, and you start asking really interesting questions. So, so who is it inside the customer organization that did the learning? And the answer is, well, it kind of depends. And if you ask, well, where did they go to do the learning? Well, the answer is it depends. Did they go to a website? Did they go to, you know, did they go to uh, a, a discussion board? Did they go to a Vegas trade show? I mean, there's all sorts of different places they could go. And so the answer is who did the learning? It depends. Where did they go to do the learning? It depends. What did they actually learn from that learning journey? Well, that depends, too. What did they conclude on that learning journey? Well, that depends. How did they put that, all that learning together to come up with an idea of what they want to do? That also depends. And so there's and so what we're finding is in this world where customers are more empowered with information, it actually introduces a huge amount of variability into the equation in terms of uh, where you start with your customer. Because largely it used to be in the old days, and the old days were not that long ago, uh, the old days would be largely your customer identifies a need and they reach out to a supplier. And so you kind of pick up that conversation, that sales conversation with most customers more or less at the same point, which, which is an identification of a need. But in today's world, your customers can get much farther than they ever could before on their own. But where they go and how they get there and where they wind up, it, it tends to be significantly more variable than ever before. When you throw your current sales machine structure at that world, what becomes dysfunctional? Well, it's, it's really interesting because you, you can add to that then uh, the, the sales approach that works most effectively, we're finding, again, this, the, the, the idea of a challenger sale, which is to, to approach your customers with an insight, not about your company, but about their company, a new way for them to think more uh, specifically about how they can compete more effectively, save money or make money in ways that they haven't fully appreciated. Uh, <clears throat> but, but if you think about the heart and soul of that insight, what that insight really is more than anything else is a story of change. It's a story of change of how that customer ultimately needs to, to change their behavior, moving from what they used to be doing to what arguably this insight would suggest that they'd be doing. But think about taking a customer on a journey of change. What, what's the one thing we know every customer in the world doesn't want to do is change, mm -hmm. which is interesting because you think about the, the one thing we're all selling is change. And every one of your listeners, you know, it's funny because we're across all those industries and all those go-to-market models and all those geographies. And one way or another, every one of us on this call today and this, in this part of this conversation, we're all selling the same thing, which is change. Mm -hmm. And it's the one thing, you're, and the one thing your customers don't want to do is yes. change. Right? Do you ever stop thinking about this kind of interesting? It's like the one thing we're selling is the one thing your customers don't want to be yeah. buying. It's kind of an interesting irony, but <clears throat> but nonetheless, what's interesting if you think about that change journey we're asking our customers to go on, it's like well, it, that also is not predictable, right? So. Who's got to change? The internal politics, the obstacles in the way, how that's going to have to roll out, the change management journey that they're going to have to institute, every one of those different aspects is going to be different for different companies. So that also introduces a huge amount of variability into this equation. Who I need to approach inside the customer organization with that insight, well, that depends. That goes back to some work we've done on what we call mobilizers, the idea that it's not, a, it's not as predictable. It used to be sort of find the senior decision maker, but we're finding when you sell on insight, it oftentimes isn't so much the senior decision maker, but the person most able and most willing to build, uh, to build consensus and drive change in their organization. Again, we call those individuals mobilizers. And what we find is mobilizers are mobilizers not because of the org chart, but despite the org chart. That, that is not the VP of this or the senior director of that, but it's Bob or Susan or Kevin 
who mobilize despite, uh, despite their role in their title, not because of it. So again, that introduces more variability. So, all right, so the, the, again, with the whole idea is that the word variability is the word that we focus on because both because of customer buying behavior and also because of the way we have to deploy the challenger strategy, all of it introduces a significant amount of variability into the sale. Now let's take our sales machine, which is built specifically to drive variability out of the sales approach and run it into this world. And it's kind of it's kind of like watching stock cars. It's like you watch it to watch the cars go into the wall, right? And you watch the it's like there's the sales machine, and it's going to go into the wall, right? It's 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 a it's a really interesting thing because you cannot run a a, a sales model that's specifically designed to drive all variability out of the system into a world that is specifically defined by a higher level of variability than ever before. And so when, you, when we go out and we study then the climate that is best associated or most associated with challenger success, what we're finding is that those sales organizations that are specifically designed to drive compliance around the set of activities known to drive success, they're actually struggling mightily to actually in, institute a, a insight selling or challenger approach because ultimately that climate is specifically designed to squelch the very thing that you need to have to, that you have to embrace, which is uh, it squelches this sort of empowerment uh, that you need to, to approach a situation, any given opportunity, any given deal with a better understanding of what's right specifically for that organization, what's right specifically for that institution, who's the person I should talk to, what's the insight I should deploy, is this, worth, is this particular opportunity worth uh, approaching in the first place? Every one of those questions is going to be different for any given deal. And when you try to, to, to sort of prescribe activities uh, in, that organization, in, that, in that environment, uh, what you find is that the prescription of activities actually winds up hampering you rather than helping you. So they're measuring the wrong metrics. Yeah, in fact, in many ways, what's interesting, it, and, and the way we kind of sum it up is a very simple question, which is to what degree do we live in a world now where sales activities are no longer as predictive of outcomes as they used to be. And I think that's ultimately where we all are, right? So if we live in a world where sales activities are no longer predictive of outcomes, at least as, as to the degree that they used to be, that raises a really interesting question about the metrics we use to measure success. Because if we are largely focused, uh, focusing our sales efforts on the uh, execution, the measurement, uh, uh, the coaching of specific sales activities, which is what we've all done up till now, and by the way, it made a ton of sense as long as those activities were predictive of outcomes. But if activities in this world of high variability are no longer predictive of outcomes, or at least as predictive outcomes, then measuring, uh, tracking, uh, reinforcing, driving compliance around activities is potentially going to do more harm than good. Let's break it down to the simplest terms. Uh, there's yeah. still a correlation, isn't there, to how many times I pick up the phone in an attempt to set an appointment, which starts the sales process, and the number of appointments I'm going to set. I mean, there's still a correlation between activity and some result, right? There is. Uh, there is but there's, it's a really interesting quantity versus quality problem, too, right? So uh, we find, you know, just to give an example, the, um, I talked to a head of sales about a year ago, and, and we were having this very conversation. Mm -hmm. and by the way, we can, we can go as deep into this as you want, because this takes you to kind of a dark place before you get to the light at the end of the tunnel. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, what I'm doing now is actually making things much more complicated and raising all sorts of potential questions like, wait, Brent, are you saying don't have a sales process? And the answer is no, you absolutely must have a sales process, but you have to rethink it pretty significantly. We can come back to that. But let me tell you the story of a head of sales I talked to recently when we were having this conversation. And she said, um, she said something really interesting, and I think it captures a lot of what we're talking about right now. She said, 
You know, Brent, this is the, you did the sales machine world that you're describing is the world that we have built up and, and, and reinforced for the better part of the last 10 years. And so we have built a sales machine. We have identified the, the activities that drive success, and we've got our equation just like, Jim, you're saying. So, you know, as I know, number of calls equals number of visits, number of visits equals a certain conversion rate, and it's this predictive sort of funnel. We build everything off of that predictive funnel. And she said, here's what's happened in the last year. He said, uh, in, in just the last year, we had actually, in terms of our, our, our funnel report, in terms of that particular world, we had an amazing year. She said, I lit up my dashboard, because I have a dashboard that helps me measure all those things, number of calls, number of visits, number of uh, you know, sort of demos, all that kind of stuff. And she said, we lit up our dashboard bright green. Uh, you know, it's like high-level performance on every single one of those activity metrics. And then at the end of the year, we were all kind of flabbergasted when we missed our number by millions of dollars. Uh, and the reason why is because while those activities are still, you know, it's, it's, we're not saying don't do those activities, but what we're saying is those activities are no longer as predictive of outcomes as they were in the past. And so what happens is, yes, you can, a number of, uh, number of email outreaches will turn into a certain number of calls, and those certain number of calls will turn into a certain number of visits. But at some point, the math starts to actually stop working in a really interesting way. Uh, and that's what we're really interested in is, is that actually it is not a quantity problem that we're running into, but a quality problem because each one of those deals actually looks a little bit different. This is BizTalk, and our guest is Brent Adamson. We're discussing his article in the Harvard Business Review, Dismantling the Sales Machine. Brent, when we left off, you had made the comment that measuring sales activities alone is no longer a predictor of success. And you made the comment that it's no longer a quantitative problem, but a quality problem. So what is the quality problem that we should be addressing? Well, the, 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 the quality problems, if activities are no longer predictive of outcomes as much as they used to be, right. then what it really means for all of us is a, is a pretty significant shift away from measuring activities and a, a shift towards measuring outcomes. And by that I mean... What is it ultimately? So, and, and there's uh, there's a significant amount of work that we've done on this in the last couple of years, and we've watched sales organizations implement this approach now for about a year and a half, two years. And the ones that have done this, they, they'll tell you it's disruptive at first, but boy, is it incredibly powerful when you go down this road, which is a shift away from thinking about how do we help our sales reps sell, and a shift towards thinking about how do we help our customers buy. And mapping not so much a sales process, but a customer buying process. And thinking about not what are the activities my, my sales reps have to engage in to sell, but what are the stages through which my customer must move in order to buy. Because one of the things we know about selling solutions, as hard as it is to sell solutions, one thing is actually harder than selling solutions, is actually buying them. <laughs> so, they, so if we can map out that customer buying process, and identify for each one of those steps in that purchase process the, the stages through which a customer might have to pass. And then the, the signals that they, would, uh, that they would convey to indicate that they've moved from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four of a purchase process, then those signals become what we've, called, uh, we've come to call customer verifiers. And so the question now becomes from a sales perspective, not what are the activities that we must achieve, like did you call them, did you do the demo, did you do the RFP, did you respond, it's not did you do these five things, but rather where's the customer in their buying process? And if they're at stage two of the customer buying process, what are the activities that we might engage in to give that, to move them to stage three? But that, that list of activities might be different for any given opportunity. So, so it, it leads to a certain amount of innovation, a certain amount of creativity, a certain amount of empowerment among sales reps and sales managers to sit down and ask a very different question, which is not, all right, step one of our process, sales process says do this activity. Step two says do this sales activity. Have you done it yet? When have you done it? Well, let me coach you on it. Now we live in a world which is, all right, where's the customer in their buying process? What have they done so far? If they're in stage two of the buying process, 
what do we need to do to get them to stage three of the buying process? And for this customer, it might be these activities. For that customer, it might be those activities. Let's figure out what it is for this customer. Let's come, let's come at this with a little bit more uh, uh, creativity, a little bit more innovation, understand for this given customer, how do we move them to the next stage in their purchase process? Because we live in a, if we live in a world where activities are no longer predictive of outcomes, it means anchoring on those activities actually creates potentially more pain or harm than good, and we need to find a way to anchor on the outcomes themselves. What I hear you saying is that, um, for argument's sake, if, if a customer is in stage two, whatever that stage two is, if they don't progress through that or they come to a conclusion that doesn't include your solution, what good does the demo do, <laughs> right? That's exactly right. Okay. Just listening to you, I, I can imagine some of our VPs of sales going, oh, man, I just I just, uh, I just, got our sales process mapped out a couple years ago. We're clicking in all cylinders. Man, how the heck do I figure out what the customer's buying process is? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, and by the way, let, I'll, let me come back to that in just a second because I sure. want to, just to kind of paint the picture of this. Because here's a – let me first answer sort of the implicit question, which is how do I know whether I even have a problem in the first place, whether I even need to worry about this, right? So the um, – mm-hmm. the, the, the way that we hear about this from, from our member companies as we talk to them around the world is, uh, one, is the story I mentioned earlier. It's like we light up our dashboard, our activity dashboard green, but we still miss the number. That's sign number one. You may have an issue. Um, the other one that we heard, and, and the, the companies that have moved towards more of a, a, you know, a, an orientation around the buying process, around the sales process, what they would tell us is they'd say our sales reps were getting out way ahead of our customers. And so sort of from their perspective, the sales rep had done everything that they'd been trained to do, coached to do, and are, are measured to do, right? So they'd, they'd done the call, they'd done the visit, they'd done the demo. Uh, and, you know, at some point, they, you know, they, they're actually uh, submitting the RFP or putting together a proposal or what have you, which, by the way, takes time and sometimes a huge amount of money. And then the deal falls apart relatively late in the sales process, and then they wonder what happens. And then the, when they go back to diagnose the problem, they find out, well, we may have been in sales process stage number five. Our customers were still in buying process stage number two, and we'd just gotten way out ahead of our customers because we had sort of just blindly or maybe over-optimistically pushed this thing forward, hoping that all the problems that were sort of, you know, sort of bubbling under the surface on the customer side would just kind of go away or we could do the end around around them if we just kept pushing forward. And so what happens is the sales organization gets out way ahead of the customer in terms of how they buy. So now, Jim, we can come back to your other question. Say, well, gosh, Brent, then how do I figure out how they buy? Um, there's actually <laughs> there, there's a very simple answer to figure out how your customers buy, which is ask them. Yeah, I was going to say. And I, I, I don't mean to be – that's a somewhat of a flippant, tongue-in-cheek answer. But quite frankly, the organizations that have figured this out better than anyone else – um, and that's part of what they've done is just go out and you know, find that, that small group of customers that you know well, that you've got good relationships with, and just ask them, you know, tell me a little bit about what has to get, you know, what has to happen. By the way, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes as a sales organization, you know, while, we, while our customers may buy our solution only once or twice uh, ever or once or twice every few years, hopefully we as a sales organization are out there selling that solution every single day. And in some ways, we in the sales organization can do a better job of predicting how a customer has to buy than the customers themselves. That leads to a whole other part of our work, which is we call commercial coaching, the idea of coaching your customer through a purchase process. But by talking to your very best sales reps, by talking to a small group of your customers, by just observing, uh, you know, doing a postmortem on deals that have worked versus deals that haven't worked, you'll find, I think, when talking to members who've done this in our organization, we found that many companies have found it's not nearly as difficult as they originally thought it might be to actually sort of lay out a, a standard buying process. And even at a, a company like ADP, which we've profiled in a lot of depth on this approach, it's a very diverse company. 
uh, across multiple divisions uh, and, and across a wide variety of sizes of customers, anything from multi-billion dollar size customers to hundreds of million, you know, medium to small, uh, small uh, size customers, they've mapped out a, a buying process that their customers have to go through uh, in order to purchase an ADP solution. And they're finding that that buying process looks virtually the same across all of that diversity, whether you're talking about North America or EMEA, whether you're talking about small and medium business versus national accounts. And what a lot of our members who are, are new to this approach hear that for the first time, they, they, their reaction is a bit of disbelief. It's like, how could that possibly be? And ADP would tell you, look, it wasn't easy to figure it out, but it was doable. And what we found is that, generally speaking, most purchases of our solution all kind of have to move through the same sort of about 10 stages of, uh, you know, in terms of that consensus uh, building uh, process, in terms of the buy-in process, the, the uh, uh, the business case building process, the testing, the demo, the piloting, all that kind of stuff. And it turns out to be a little bit more predictable than you might think and actually more scalable than you'd ever believe. So bring that back to the climate then that we have to create in order for all this to function properly. Yeah. So, so that, the, the, when you bring it all back to that, well, the idea here is when you, when you go out and you test with metrics or data, the climate that is most or, or best designed to support a challenger uh, in the challenger sale and in the challenger approach. Again, what we found is that the, a, a sales climate that is specifically designed around compliance, around activity-driven metrics, around individual contributor performance and celebrating the success of, uh, of sort of, uh, uh, of the individual who's, who's like hit the hit their activity dashboard in green, done more calls a day and more visits per hour or more visits per week than anyone else. What you find is a climate that celebrates and even mandates that kind of compliance around activities um, can actually, again, do more harm than, than good for all the reasons we've already talked about. And if you look at the alternate question, which is, so what kind of climate is best designed to support a challenger sale in this, high, in this world of high variability, it is it's night and day different. It is the exact opposite. So it is a climate of what you might call empowerment. So the, the different attributes of, of a climate that support uh, a challenger sale in this world of high variability are things like a strong focus on pre-planning, uh, or excuse me, er, uh, not pre-planning, but uh, pre-sales activity. So, uh, and by that early funnel, particularly funnel building and demand creation. So who should we even go after in the first place, as opposed to a late stage sort of uh, reactive approach to have you, that guy called us or they sent, they submitted an RFP, have you, or, or they requested an RFP, have you submitted a, a response yet? We're finding that it is, uh, it is a, uh, a climate that is less designed to, again, drive compliance around activities and more designed around coming up with innovative solutions to whatever uh, any given situation might be. So what, you, what you're finding, and this has all sorts of interesting implications, by the way, around uh, manager, uh, around, around sales managers and manager coaching and sales reps and sales talent, because it's, it's one thing to ask, can I train my sales reps to be challengers? It's a completely different sort of thing to ask, Am I comfortable allowing my sales reps to use more judgment in any given situation based on the contextual clues of that particular opportunity? And when we first started showing this to our members, a lot of them got, frankly, really nervous. They're saying, we're not hiring for that. Traditionally, we've hired for someone who can basically the hard worker profile, someone who can you know, bang the phones and do more calls an hour, more visits per week than anyone else. And if you're asking me to, to rely on my sales reps to, to engage in more of a uh, of a, a judgment-type exercise of based on the contextual clues of this situation, what's the best thing to do for this customer, irrespective of what my sales process says I should do right now in terms of activities, that's a completely different animal altogether. And so it's, it's led us to think about, uh, to really start thinking about hard questions around hiring, for example. Are we hiring towards a challenger profile? Are we hiring towards a, 
a judgment-based profile as opposed to an activity-driven or a compliance-based profile. And for that matter, for our managers, you know, coaching, which has always been our, on our radar screen, is hugely important over the last 10 years or so. And I think we'd all agree in today's call that, you know, sales coaching is massively important for sales success. But if you live in a world where each deal is going to look a little bit different and you have to use uh, more judgment than ever before uh, to figure out what the right thing is to do on that deal, I'll tell you, coaching becomes that much more important in this world. So are our managers truly focused on empowering their sales reps and creating collaborative teams where we can work together to come up with innovative solutions to moving individual deals forward? Are we helping those sales reps? Because one thing to say, use your judgment here. It's like, I, dude, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. like, what do you want me? What does that even mean? Right? So, so managers must be equipped to have a much better understanding that manager conversations today cannot be like, let's pull out the sales process. Say, are you done these three activities? What's next on the list? It looks like activity four. Okay, go get them. It can't be that. It has to be a, a conversation around, well, what are you seeing right now in this account? What are what you know? What are you based on your experience and based on sort of our knowledge? What what do you think is likely to happen in this account? Based on that, what do you think is the next thing that we should do? That's more of a coaching conversation around, and, and let's see if we can work together to come up with a, a collaborative, innovative solution for this particular approach. That's a really different kind of thing than a lot of us. The, the machine, the sales machine that we're all trying to run at this, you know, again, drive out the variability, identify the activities that drive success, and just pound those activities as much as we can. That's it's sort of the boiler room approach that we see in the movies. But I, I think to some degree or another, you know, that's the overstated caricature. But we all have kind of built that sort of organization to some degree or another. And the question now is how do we move away from that, not because we want to, but because we have to, because selling in that world today – it's just when those activities are no longer predictive outcomes is actually going to, again, get us in trouble. Our guest is Brent Adamson. You're listening to BizTalk, and we're discussing his article in the Harvard Business Review, Dismantling the Sales Machine. Brett, what we've been talking about has an impact on our sales managers. You know, there's been studies done by the Objective Management Group, which is an assessment company that evaluates what sales managers and salespeople are able to execute on. And in those studies, we find that the skill of coaching is almost non-existent. In other words, most people we assess for that don't have that skill. So in one aspect, we have our managers in a row they cannot execute on, or they've never been taught how to coach. So how do we, and as you are aware, Brent, coaching is a lot different than telling. Absolutely. You know, and there's, there's one way, it's kind of funny. I, I think of all the, the various individuals around the world listening to this podcast. You know, there's one way I can get every one of their heads to nod uh, at the same time, albeit virtually, and that's to simply make the comment or make, you know, the, the observation, which is, you know, one of the things we all know is that just because you're a world-class sales rep doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a world-class sales manager. Uh -huh. So we all know that to be true, right? But, yep. And yet that's sort of how we promote individuals into sales management nonetheless. Because we often refer to this as the double jump. And the idea of the double jump is, um, is that when you move someone into a manager role, particularly today, they're actually twice removed from – so if they, if they came up in the ranks, in the sales ranks, as a world-class seller – selling into this old world of compliance-driven activity-based selling excellence, and now they're a manager in this world of high variability and judgment orientation. No longer are they not selling but managing, but also they're living in a world that is no longer activity-based, uh, but rather outcome-based. And so it's a double jump. And so if their gut reaction as a manager is to simply relive the glory days, and they have that conversation we've all heard a thousand times, which is, well, I've been in sales for 20 years, and what I have found to be true is it's following three things. And if you just do these three things, like I've always done these three things, then you too will succeed. Here, let me just get out of my way and let me show you how to do it, right? It's like, one, you're not managing or coaching, and two, you're living in a world that no longer exists. Listening to you, whether you're at the entry level of this whole process, which is our feet on the street, our sales professionals, or you're at the managerial level, at a core 
core, what I hear you saying is the cognitive ability of the people in these roles need to increase. In other words, we're hiring for someone who has more cognitive ability. You'd have to, to survive in the world you just described. You know, the, the bar for talent uh, likely has to go up. I, I don't want to be unfair and say pretty significantly, but it, it, it's going to have to go up in sales in terms of what we traditionally hire for. And it's a let us actually begin to look at this question of hiring in some depth, and it's pretty troubling. When you go out and you test sort of the, the challenger profile and the, the attributes that truly make someone a, a world-class challenger sales professional, and you look in, at the subset of that database uh, of just the sales professionals, you can actually begin to ask, all right, so what percentage of sales professionals out there in the world right now score high already on challenger attributes? And what you find is it's somewhere between 15 and 17%. If you think about it, it's a pretty small number, right? right. So if I wanted to go out and find more challenger reps to, to live and work and thrive in this new environment, um, one, there's not as many out there as likely as a, as a, as a function, as an industry that we're all going to need. And two, if you think about where they are now, chances are pretty good they're working for someone else and making a lot of money. So they're going to be hard to find. They're going to be expensive to recruit. And so it's raised a really interesting question for us. So in that case, you know, one question we are all asking is, how do I do a better job of finding sales reps who can function as challengers? But the other question is, beyond sort of finding more sales reps who can challenge, what if we were to ask the opposite question, which is, how can we find more challengers, irrespective of what function they're in now, who might be willing to sell? And so the question is like, well, are there challengers outside of sales? And it turns out we actually can test that now with this new database, and the answer is absolutely. In fact, proportionally speaking, there's as many challengers outside of sales as there are inside of sales. Um, But it raises all sorts of other questions around what would the employee value proposition have to be for that person to to recruit them, to attract them into the sales profession when, in fact, let's face it, our profession's got a bit of a branding problem outside of sales, right? It's like, you want me to work in what? Sales? What? No. And and then there's also a question I think we all have, which is, can someone who's not traditionally from sales function effectively in sales? Because at the end of the day, sales is different. You've got to look someone in the eye and sometimes ask them quite literally for millions of their dollars, and they could just easily slam the door in your face and say no. And that's a hard thing to do. So sales is different. So, yes, you know, can we look for challengers who might be willing to sell? And the answer is not all of them are going to be willing to ask for money. That is absolutely true or ask or have that hard commercial conversation. But what we found is many people already in the sales profession aren't very comfortable having a tough commercial conversation. (laughs) So, in fact, proportionally speaking, it's almost the exact same proportion that those people outside of sales and inside of sales willing and able to have a tough commercial conversation is about the same. It's about about 70%, which is kind of interesting. That tells you 30% of the sales reps you have already are not willing and able to engage in a tough commercial conversation, which is a a red flag there and a different story perhaps for a different time. But all this is simply to say that it's a long answer to a short question, Jim, which is it's going to have to change the profile of the type of people that we're looking for. If, this, if the, uh, the scarce or the rare skill in today's selling environment is challenger ability and not sales ability, that's the thing we really need to focus on in our hiring, in our promotion, in our assessments, in our training, in our certification is the challenger ability because that's the thing that's hardest to find and yet most important in this new world. Brent, no pun intended, but what is the biggest challenge that the CEB has seen companies face in implementing this challenger sale model? You know, and just broadly, uh, even more broadly speaking, the um, how difficult the, the, the challenge of moving towards a challenger organization, because what, what happens, we find, is that 
uh, is that a lot of companies will see this uh, approach as a sales methodology, right? So, you know, in yeah. the past, you've, you've had sort of spin, you've got Miller-Hyman, and but nothing uh, against any of those approaches. They've all been great approaches. It's all served us well. But I think that as a result of that sort of tendency to move from one sales approach to another over the last, what, 30, 40 years, is the tendency to kind of think of challengers, the next thing in that line. And so we move to this as the new sales methodology. And we used to get that question all the time, right? Is this a sales methodology? And how does it fit in with other sales methodologies? And what we've and this has been a learning journey for us as it has been for everyone else. What we've come to truly appreciate in a very sort of a, uh, just a, well, in a poignant sort of way is this is a challenger approach is, is not, well, maybe not just is probably the best way to put it. It was not just a sales methodology. And if you want the strong version, it's not, it's not a sales methodology. What it really is is a commercial strategy. And the reason why I mention that is because the only way to really successfully implement a challenger approach in your organization is to do it in your organization, to think about what does this mean at the leadership level in terms of commercial strategy, not just sales methodology, but literally commercial strategy. How do we go to market? Which markets do we want to focus on? Where are we looking to drive growth? How are we going to deploy Challenger there? It's a marketing strategy. What does it mean for the content that we create? What does it mean for our content marketing strategy? What does it mean for our lead generation strategy? To your point, Jim, so that a lot of what I find myself talking about Challenger now with our member companies, it's oftentimes with the CEO and the CMO along with the CSO to try to understand what does this mean not for our sales reps, but what does this mean for our company? Because unless you think of this as an organizational uh, strategy, a go-to-market strategy, as opposed to just a, a sales methodology, chances are pretty good you're going to see limited success. Okay, Brent, all good discussions, but some will have to save for another show. Brent, thanks for being on the program. Happy to be here, Jimmy. What a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.